0: Guten Morgen. As you know, Christy and I have been traveling. And four weeks ago, we were in Branson, Missouri, where I was presenting at the American Association of Christian Counselors. And we uh, did a presentation on um, love and love's counterfeits that were very, very well received. Many people uh, picked up our book while we were there. And, uh, and in the aftermath of that, I was uh, invited up to do a nationwide radio program at the American Association of Christian Counselors out of um, Lynchburg, Virginia, which went very well, and also a, a, a telemedicine uh, web, webinar with them. And then three weeks ago, we were in Asheville, North Carolina, where I spoke at the Southern Psychiatric Association uh, on uh, epigenetic changes uh, from environment and how those pass through the generations. And then the last two weeks... We have been in Germany, and we want to give a special Dankeschön uh, to um, to our friends Zoran, Adriana, Marco, Danielle, Draghi, Rosa, Liliana, and Mickey. These are the people who were um, so gracious to bring us over. We stayed in their home, and they helped organize the public presentations that we did. And it was a very interesting type of presentation because um, our goal was to try to do some presentations that could open their mind up to the reality of God. And we did five talks to the public. They rented a public uh, uh, auditorium, and it was packed every night. They advertised in the newspaper. And our first talk on the first night was called The Developing Brain. And then at the end of that talk, we asked the question, uh, which is more scientifically accurate, Charles Darwin or the Bible? <laughs> And uh, then I showed a picture of Darwin's finches, if you know about Darwin's finches, the, the different finches with the different sized beaks and shapes of beaks that he uh, postulated that uh, over thousands of years of evolutionary pressure and genetic mutation caused these differences in, in beak. And we showed that, in fact, uh, this was not, uh, uh, Darwin was wrong, this is epigenetic changes that happens very quickly through um, I- environmental influences. And that the scripture, when it talks about sins passed down three and four generations, is actually talking epigenetic changes. And so the scripture is more scientifically a- accurate than Darwin. And that's where we, we left them after the first night. And, and the second night, we uh, went through the neurobiology of depression and wove in, wove in some biblical principles in that lecture. Third night, addictions, and show how addictions alter brain. Fourth night, we did science of belief. How your beliefs alter uh, brain structure and affect physical health. And then the last night we uh talked about uh biblical principles for healing families. And each night there was just resounding uh, affirmation for our programs so, and we had people at the end of the seminar fill out uh, uh questionnaires and uh we asked things like um did you think the uh the information was presented in a scientifically sound fashion? Did you uh, did this uh, seminar challenge you to live a healthier lifestyle? Did this seminar challenge you uh to um pursue spirituality in your life? And across the board everybody was answering yes, 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 yes or you know it was 1 to 6 on the score scoring them all very high. So the message is going forward. We have a, a, some wonderful people in Germany who share this perspective of God, love this perspective of God, and are very active in wanting to share it with their community. And they are, are, are members of our class, our online family, and they listen with us every week. Uh, they mentioned uh, several of you who, who speak out in class. They recognize your voice and, and have uh, already introduced, uh, mentioned they, they'd like to meet you. So hopefully we can have them come visit us sometime and we can uh, make them feel welcome. We want to thank all those who have been supporting our new ministry. You may notice we've got some new audio equipment. We've got uh, new mics. We've got a new shotgun mic. Uh, because of some of the rooms we've had to bounce to over the last few months, sometimes it sounds like you're in a, in a drum. That should significantly reduce. We should have much better audio from this point forward. Let's begin class with with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for watching over and keeping us safe, uh, uh, being with our class. Uh being with the members of our class who live all over the world and who are sharing this wonderful message about you. We pray your, your blessing will be upon all of us around this world that we can be empowered to share the truth about you, that the light of your, your true character might be known and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly background characters in the Old Testament. And the lesson title this week is Uriah, Faith of a Foreigner of a foreigner. If someone would read the first two paragraphs for us that begin, imagine. First two paragraphs.
1: Imagine that you're buying a train ticket and you stand in line for a long time and worry about missing your training. Finally, you pay, receive your ticket, and run to the train, and on the way, you count your change and discover that you have been given too far too much. What do you do? Stand in line again to return the money and perhaps miss your train? Or simply, consider this your lucky day to move on? What you do in this situation will depend on your understanding of right and wrong. Ethics is the way that we apply this understanding in our everyday lives. Nowadays, the most popular type of ethics is situation ethics, which suggests that there are no moral absolutes. It often means doing whatever is most beneficial for oneself in a particular situation.
0: What do you think about the first two paragraphs? A little, oversimplified. a little oversimplified. Yeah, did you did you not think of the solution that I'll just pay the uh, the conductor the extra money when he comes to punch my ticket, or I'll just pay when I arrive at the other end? I mean, they, they set up a, a conflict here that that uh, really doesn't exist in, in a thinking person's mind, it seems to me. But I think their illustration is to try to suggest that there are circumstances where we are put in situations where we have to make decisions. It's suggested the last uh, last paragraph, last sentence read, that um, situation ethics often means doing whatever is most beneficial for oneself in a particular situation. Well, what about when one is motivated by love for God and love for others? Then does situation make a difference? So do you make different decisions based on situation when you're not motivated by self? No? No. What about Rahab? What did Rahab do?
1: She lied. She lied.
0: Now, could it have been she was just trying to protect herself? Could it have been she was actually trying to protect the people she was hiding? And she wasn't trying to protect herself at all. She was putting herself at risk by hiding them and lying for them. She Maybe she was doing both. I mean, mixed motives, right? She
1: can protect herself by them.
0: But would she have protected herself to hide them in the first place?
1: Yeah. I've heard it said that she didn't trust God enough or understand Him enough yet to know that there was another solution besides lying. And what was that? To tell the truth and just let God work it out.
0: To tell the truth and let God work it out. Yep, yeah, yeah, might, have, might, might have they might have been arrested and thrown in a fiery furnace. And we'd had that story a lot sooner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: What about God? Does God himself, does his character of love ever change? Does God's behavior change depending on circumstance? Yes. Yes. Well, did God thunder at Sinai? Did the same God cry at Olivet? Did God change there? Or what about this? Uh, or should we say, what made the difference? Why was he thundering at Sinai? And why was God crying at Mount Olivet? What made the difference? Was it circumstance? Was it situation? Yes. Did God rain fire down from heaven to consume the platoons that were trying to arrest Elijah? No. Sure he did. Ahab sent out the platoons to hunt down Elijah. Fire comes down to, to burn up. God did this? Yeah? But did Jesus, the same God who rained fire down on the platoons, also die at Calvary for us? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Was God different in those two circumstances? Do parents ever thunder at their children? There's only two parents in here that have done that? (laughs) So why do parents thunder at their children? I mean, let's assume the parent is maintaining a loving heart all the time. Do they still thunder sometimes? Yes, to get their attention, to protect them because some danger is occurring, because the child needs some redirection. Yes, yes. Okay, is it ever, so should situation matter or should we have rules that apply in all circumstances? Is it ever appropriate for a man to stand up in church and and rip the woman's blouse open exposing her chest? How about if she's had a heart attack and the man is a paramedic and he's going to uh, uh, shock her heart to start her heart back? Would that be appropriate? Yeah, save her life. Um, is it ever okay for a, to speak vile, lewd, and disgusting profanity? How about if you were witness to a crime and under oath in court you have to testify to what you heard? Should you be truthful and testify to what you heard or should you lie? I mean, do we have rules or do we have principles? Should we always tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Should we? No. <laughs> any, any discussion on that?
1: You don't have to say
0: everything. <laughs> well, maybe you guys can help me with a dilemma. Um, most of you know what I do for a living. I'm a psychiatrist. And I want you to imagine that uh, you uh, live in a different city. You're just visiting here this weekend. And, and your pastor has heard that I'm a Christian psychiatrist, and he's been struggling with a pornographic addiction. And he came to see me as a patient. That's the only time I've ever known. And I'm and I'm treating him for this difficulty. And that's the only way I know your pastor. And and then one day I get an invitation to come to your town to do some some programs, and and you meet me after the program, and you say, Hey, do you know Pastor So and So, who happens to be your pastor? What should I say? Should I tell the truth? Should I say, well, I'm sorry, but medical ethics and rights of patient confidentiality do not allow me to answer your question. (laughs) Should I say, well, I have much to tell you, but you can't now bear it. (laughs) What should I say? How about if you happened to have marriage problems and you were actually counseling with your pastor and you were actually getting benefit from the marital counseling, what would happen if you found out your pastor was in counseling with me? Would your pastor be able to help you anymore? What would happen when you listened to his sermons if you found out what he was being in treatment with me for? Would your confidence... My, and what would happen? Would you be tempted to maybe tell someone else? Should I tell? Should I tell the whole truth? Well, how would you answer the question? I mean, I've got to tell you, this is not an uncommon thing. I've been in this situation more than once. What would you say?
1: Well, yes, I'm a
0: with him. Well, where do you know him from? I went to high school with him. Where'd you meet him? Business associate. Business associate? What business do y'all do together?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, he's a patient, is he?
1: <laughs> no,
0: the, truth, the whole truth and something like the truth, <laughs> the whole truth, like the truth. Uh-huh. other suggestions
1: I suppose some of you have read uh, Corey Timboon's yes. story and, um,
0: yes I have
1: during, and during the war you know, the Germans burst in and said where are you hiding the Jews and of course Corey would always lie what Jews we don't know anything about it and, um, and her sister who was this thing a little odd. They say, oh no, they're, they're here. They're right underneath the table, which they were. They were hiding underneath the table in a room underneath the table. The Lord blessed both of them with, uh, with the way they were in their Christian
0: walk. Well, if you remember the story a little more, when the sister said they're under the table, they were under a trap door in a room, and they had a and they had a rug over the over the trap door, and then the table on top of the rug, and a and a, a tablecloth on the top of the table. And then when she said, they're under the table, the Germans looked under the table, she began to laugh. And they got mad that she was laughing and left. This is how the story goes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, was her laughter designed to mislead? Was her laughter designed to get them to believe that she had tricked them?
1: In one of my Bible classes in academy, the... The thing I remember out of that whole class is that the teacher taught us the intention to deceive constitutes a
0: falsehood. Well, this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 309. Let's see what you all think. And think about the, the well, because I remember the story from Cory ten Boone also, and people use that as evidence. See, Cory sister told the truth. That's what we should do in all circumstances. Told the truth and God will protect. This is what it says out of Patriarchs and Prophets, 309. False speaking in any manner, every attempt or purpose to deceive our neighbor, they talking about the ninth commandment, by the way, uh, is here included. An intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood. By a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as, eff- as effectively as by words. All intentional overstatement. Every hint or insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous or an exaggerated impression. Even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead is falsehood. So, they're under the table. <laughs> Truth-telling or falsehood? Wow, we're not as comfortable anymore, are we? Because that took away all our excuses. That took all our little, little you know, shenanigans we play so I can tell the truth and still deceive.
1: Well, what does the ninth commandment
0: say? Thank you, Russell. What does it say? Thou
1: shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor.
0: Yeah, so is it saying?
1: Thou shalt not lie.
0: Well, this is what the next sentences say in Patriarchs and Prophets. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentation or evil surmising, by slander or talebearing, bearing Even the intentional suppression of truth... By which injury may result to others is a violation of the ninth commandment.
1: Would it perhaps be more better written, "I shall not I,
0: I You know, that works to me. But you notice that that it's not simply about stating a falsehood in the commandment. And I'm not saying false. We should ever say falsehoods, but that because we shouldn't. But the commandment's main focus is is the principle of love, loving others. And we should not do anything which is going to be designed to harm or injure others. How many times have people broken the ninth commandment by truth-telling? It's prayer meeting. We need to pray for sister (laughs) so-and-so. Because she's struggling with such-and-such. Really? Okay, we just put it out there, didn't we? Hurt reputation by truth-telling. Would that be a a loving act to do? No, it's destructive. Yeah. And so the principle of the commandments are to love others and to love God. First sentence in the last paragraph states, This week we'll see a powerful contrast of ethics between those of King David and the soldier Uriah. Do you all think that the problem between Uriah and David was a contrast of ethics? Or something more basic? like a contrast of character. Before we talk about David and, and, and Uriah, let's talk about ethics for a moment. Let's examine the, a question. If two, people, if two people find themselves opposed on an issue, does that mean one of them is unethical or has bad ethics? For instance, could two people find, find uh, with love in their hearts, seeking to do what they thought was best for another, arrive at different positions on the same issue could they both be ethical but opposed to each other Any, any examples could a person ethically support the freedom of conscience and freedom to choose and therefore protect a woman's right to abortion ethically could a person uh ethically seek to protect human life and seek to oppose abortion ethically could two people, ethically, be on opposite sides of that question? Yeah. Doesn't mean one of them has bad ethics. Yeah. So what is ethics? Any thoughts? A set of moral principles, a theory or system of moral values. So when you think about that in mind, and the lesson is suggesting that we're going to look at a different uh ethics between David and Uriah, is that right? Do you think that David and Uriah had a different morals or different ethics? Do you think David at some time in his life actually thought what he was doing was moral and ethical and right and appropriate? He didn't have a problem with his morals and ethics. He knew it was wrong. That's why he was trying to hide it, right? Trying to cover it up. (laughs) He knew it was wrong. It was unethical. It was immoral. No, he didn't have a he had a problem with application. Of his morals or ethics, or living his moral ethics, which is a character issue. Now, there are some people who actually do have bad morals and bad ethics. They actually think it's appropriate to do some of these things. You know, uh, some people think it's appropriate to discriminate. They think that it's moral to um, denigrate uh, women. They think that uh, th- th- these they have a problem in their morals and ethics. I don't think David actually thought what he was doing was right or moral. Do you? No. No. Sunday's lesson talks about David's sin against Uriah and how he had an affair with Uriah's wife, then tried to cover it up, culminating in the murder of Uriah. Somebody read for us the second paragraph, which begins, Some may want... Some
1: may want to see in David's sin an excuse for their own. However, the narrator emphasizes that sin has consequences and shows how many lives one particular sin affected. The first to suffer as a result of David's sin is Uriah, followed by the child born to David and Bathsheba. David loses credibility in his family and the repercussions spread from a family problem to a problem of national proportions. The chain reaction that, that David's sin has set in motion widens to include rape, murder, and many lives lost in a rebellion. Even if repentance gains God's mercy, the author of the book of Samuel clearly points out to us that sin has grave consequences.
0: What is your analysis of this paragraph? How do you you make sense of it? Ah, okay. You know, So he, he, he honed in on the sentence I honed in on as well, first thing. He says in the sentence, the first to suffer as a result of David's sin is Uriah. So I call that in the question. He suggests the first to suffer is David. So do you think that the... There's no question Uriah suffered. He was murdered. Who suffered worse? Uriah, David, or Bathsheba? And who suffered first? Worst and first? David was first. I'm, not, I'm hearing mumblings and... <laughs>
1: that
0: happened in David were pretty significant. So, do you think, let's, let's look at Bathsheba for a moment. Bathsheba's caught up there by the king and uh, seduced or pressured into a sexual relationship. Do you think she walked away that night going back to her home with a, with a sense of peace and well being? Do you think her esteem was elevated? Do you think she felt pure and holy before the Lord? In other words, was she injured by that? damaged yeah so she, and that that was before uriah was damaged wasn't it and what about david do you think david oh, was able to engage in those behaviors without serious conscience without convictions of guilt without having to like like adam and eden it make excuses and it wasn't me it was the woman make all kinds of huge rationalize uh deny and all these other things which is warping his reasoning david was damaged wasn't he yeah, did he have, in, do you think David had increased fear and anxiety? When the word came back, she was pregnant. What do you, what do you think David experienced? Joy? Oh, hallelujah. Going to have another child. Or serious fear and anxiety. Was he damaged? You see, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were Afraid wrongdoing instills fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity drive us to, to do what? Protect self. Protect self at the expense of others. And so what did David do with his fear and insecurity? Then he calls back Uriah. And Uriah, of course, you know, uh, won't take all the advantages David's trying to give him. Yes?
1: You're talking about those emotions, though, as damaging. But God can use those same emotions to bring us back to him. Help
0: me understand that.
1: Can God not use those same emotions that David had of fear that that she was going to have a child to turn David back to God? I've sinned. It it didn't have to take Nathan's intervention.
0: Okay, so you're suggesting that um, it is the, the negative consequences, including the emotional consequences, alerts us something is not right. We're not at peace anymore. We need something to be fixed within us, and that can lead us back. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And when we touch a hot stove and get burned, the pain alerts us something's wrong. When we don't brush our teeth and get cavities, the pain alerts us something's wrong. Now we have two options when we get the pain of the cavities. We have the option of going to the dentist and doing what we need to to actually fix the real problem. We have the option of trying to alleviate the pain with drugs and alcohol and and Ambisol and and anything else we can rub on it because we don't want to deal with the problem. We just don't want to have pain. Isn't that true? And so when David experiences his psychological, emotional convictions of guilt, fear, anxiety, all this self is starting is starting to well up, oh no, what's going to happen to me? He has one option, go to humble himself before the Lord, accept responsibility, uh, and, and follow the consequences which will come, and seek to set things right. Another option is to do what he can to cover it up, to not deal with the problem at all, to not heal himself, and, and actually make things even worse. And, and that's what he chose to do. And that's what sin, that's what fear generally leads us to do. Now, why? No, but why would fear lead us to do that? This is a good, good, I'm glad you brought this up. Why would when we sin, why when Adam sinned and he experienced fear, why was he running away from the Lord rather than to the Lord? I mean, as we look at it logically, wasn't the right place to run to the Lord? But he didn't run to the Lord. David, after his sin, the right thing to do is run to God, right? But where is he running? Away from God. Why is it that we tend to run away from God after sin?
1: Something changes within us.
0: She says, because we believe lies about God?
1: Something changes as a part of the process of the distrust and the sin. Something changes within us.
0: Something changes within us. Our own conscience guilt. convict us of guilt. Our own judgment within our minds look at us in what way? How do we look at ourselves after if you were David and you had done this? How would you look at yourself?
1: Isn't this the same kind of response when your puppy knows it's done something wrong, it doesn't come to you, it goes and
0: cowers in a corner? It's a fear response, isn't it? I think it's more, certainly there is that wiring, that fear and insecurity. We all have since sin, that survival, the fittest instinct to watch out for number one. We are wired that way, no question. But we have more going on for us than a puppy. We have capacities to think, and those fear responses actually cause certain thought processes to begin in our mind, which then will cause an imaginary circumstance to make it even more overwhelming for us. So, um, I'm suggesting in our mind, when we have this fear and insecurity, what kind of thoughts do we start thinking? How do we see ourselves?
1: We condemn ourselves. Yeah. And then we have to run away from it.
0: We condemn ourselves. We see ourselves as unworthy, as, as, as ugly, as, 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 uh, vile. And then, because that's how we're judging ourselves in our own mind, what do we expect other people to, to do to us? To us.
1: projected on every, everyone else and God.
0: Don't we expect other people if they knew they they wouldn't like us either. They would hate us, they would want to stone us, they would and and so we see God and others with the same distorted way we're seeing ourselves. We don't see. Now, spin it around for a moment. Think about the friends, family members, children that you have that have done sinful things. And when you find out about it, how do you how do you see them? Do you see them in such a condemning way that you want to destroy them? Or do you see them with compassion and love and want to rescue and save them? You see, and the difference is when, you, when you're seeing it in your child or in, your, in someone else you, you know and care about, you're not seeing it through the lens of fear. You're seeing it through the lens of love. Makes a big difference, doesn't it? Same action, seen through fear, seen through love. So we see, number one, that David and Bathsheba were first injured. And their injury caused at least David uh, to start having a destructive line of self-protected mode behaviors, which caused him to reach out to cause harm to others in an attempt to protect himself, survival of the fittest, watch out for number one, uh, which um, ultimately led to the murder of Uriah, which then, the lesson says, caused, caused this cascade of things throughout the kingdom. It described here all these other sins happening. I want to talk about that, these other sins happening. Why? Why did, Why? after David's, in it? David's adultery, David's murder of Uriah, when the news got out, why did it result in a chain reaction of, of rape, murder, and lives being lost, rebellion in the kingdom? Why? Is that an inevitability? Think through the, 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 the possibilities. David has sinned. It's history. It's done now. Now the word gets out what he's done. Was it an automatic, had to result in this? Why did it result in this?
1: It's a chain reaction. 12% after another.
0: What could have prevented David's sin after it's done? Can't, we're not talking about what could have prevented David's sin. We're talking about what could have prevented David's sin after he com- uh, completed it from having all these negative consequences of rape, murder, rebellion in the kingdom, and so forth. Yes?
1: The, the change in him caused him not to be able to govern his family and his in a very good way, because he was now, he felt so crummy about himself, he didn't have the ability to stand up strongly for the good of others. And then, the people at the same time were losing respect. They lost respect for what they thought he was and for, for the kind of governor that he was. And so, those things put together were a bad combination of them going in a bad direction. And him not being able to really do anything to stay that because he just became a weak leader because of how crummy he felt about himself.
0: How long do you think he felt crummy about himself? The rest of his life? Do you really think so? No. It, 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 have any, has anybody in this room besides me committed a sin? <laughs> <laughs> have you experienced God's grace in your life and, and forgiveness? And Do you still feel crummy about yourself the rest of your life? Should you? No. no. If you're still feeling crummy, there's something wrong. Because we're supposed to have a new heart and right spirit. We're supposed to be renewed in the inner man. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to live in joy. We're supposed to. We're not supposed to live in the past, glooming over the, the mistakes of the past. That old man is dead. A new man has come. As long as, there's a devil. as long as there's a devil, he'll try to throw up the past in your face. But throwing the past up in your face, what does that mean? Anybody was sick as a kid, have, have the flu, vomiting, diarrhea when you were five? If somebody brought that up now and said, Boy, when you were a kid, you vomited and you had diarrhea, you made ugly messes. Man, that was gross, that was nasty. Would you get all upset about that? Or would you go, well, Yeah, I sure did, but it, who cares? It's irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Why? Because you're not sick now. You see, the question when it talks about sin is not whether we've done bad, ugly things in the past. The question is, what's the condition of the heart now? Have we been renewed? Have we been healed? Have we been transformed? Have we have a new heart and right spirit? Has the law of God been written in the tablets of the heart? So I suggest that David, you read Psalms 51, had a change of heart, a renewal, a true transformation. And if you look at the history of his life after these events, he never committed adultery again. He never went around abusing people again. He never murdered everyone again. He was a gentle, loving leader after that. But there was a period of time when he was in this valley of uncertainty. Then you read about this. So the question is, how long before he gets to that point of of healing? Yes?
1: Going back to your first question about why did this sin propagate throughout the country? And I think you're you're, you're getting there. But the, the problem was, his sin was open sin. Everybody knew about it. And he didn't follow that up with immediate, open repentance.
0: Okay, and, and so that he, you're right, right. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, open sin, no open repentance. Why would that result in all these other things—rape, murder, rebellion? Why? I'm going to suggest to you it happened because the sin and the knowledge of sin impacted people who, in themselves, were unconverted. Impacted people who still were operating from selfishness in their own heart. Impacted people who are angry, and and it's not fair that the king should act in this way? Of course it wasn't. What would have happened if the people in Israel would have had hearts that loved like Jesus loved? If they had hearts like Jesus and David did what he did, would it have still resulted in all the stuff that it resulted in in the kingdom? No. So David's sin, yes, it had these consequences only because it impacted people who themselves were still operating from selfish me first motives. Yes, over here somewhere. Yes. Yes.
1: What do you think would have happened if David had run to God and made a public confession and asked forgiveness of the people in his
0: kingdom? Well, first off, I'm not sure it had to be a public confession because his sin wasn't open in the beginning. His sin was actually a private sin in the beginning. It was between him him and Bathsheba. And, and, And later it became public, but initially it wasn't public. It only became public when the prophet came. Prior to that, he had opportunities to run to God and confess his sin and seek God's wisdom and counsel and what to do. I don't know what, how God would have resolved the situation in David's life. I know God would have forgiven him, would have given him new heart and right spirit, uh, socially. And maybe we should talk about this. What is repentance? Give me a definition of repentance. Biblical repentance is turning around, turning away from. Yeah, away from what? Sin? Away from self. Way from self. I like that. That's good. Very good. Away from self. Away from. Uh, w- 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 if somebody was uh, was an alcoholic or, or uh, an addict of some kind, and they repented, a genuine repentance. What do they, would they continue to engage in their in their addictions ongoing? Not maybe a, a slip, a human slip, but their heart's desires. Their heart's desire turned away from that. Mm-hmm. Do they want to be free of it? What about David? Did he repent? Yes. Yes. But yet he married Bathsheba. What is that?
1: That
0: was his repentance. I mean, but he got her. He didn't turn away from her.
1: You can't unscramble eggs.
0: You can't unscramble eggs. (laughs) Wisdom. Wisdom, yes. Uh,
1: I think you have to leave this whole thing culturally. To begin with, Mm -hmm. he sent for Bathsheba. It was Satan's Ray, and he had held a knife to her throat. She had no choice. He was the king.
0: Okay, excellent.
1: The people that came together, she could have died or she could have gone to But She had no choice. After that, she was damaged. She had no future life, and he did rescue her from there. Oh,
0: excellent. Well said, well said. In the culture of the time, once, once Uriah was dead, she had no standing in society. She had no income, she had no place to live, she had no station, she, would have, she was a widow, uh, which gave her no standing property or anything, no name in society. Oh, and David, when we repent, we have the responsibility to as far as we possibly can without adding damage, to restore what, w- what was taken That's part of repentance. And the only way David could restore her name, her station, her dignity in the community was to make her his wife. And then she again had those things restored to her.
1: Something that always bothered me is we were just talking about how we're supposed to forget the past. Once we're just this and to forget the past. God did not allow David to build the temple after that because he was a man of blood. So, I mean, if you're supposed to forget the past and put it aside, because if you've got to change your why.
0: <laughs> was it because of Uriah or was it because of other issues in his oh, life?
1: I several other issues, but he was a man of blood.
0: What does that mean?
1: Because he was a man of war. He liked war. He liked... That aspect, and because that is a, at least that's what
0: the patriarchal prophet says. Yeah, and so so your question is because he couldn't build the temple, he was unforgiven.
1: Now my question is, if you're supposed to forget the past, why didn't God just?
0: Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, who said thing? you're supposed to forget David the past?
1: David wanted to build that temple. Okay,
0: this is a myth, and thanks for bringing the myth up. One of the myths of forgiveness is that when you forgive, you forget. That's a myth. It's, it's an un, in other words, it's an untruth. So the idea that when you forgive, you forget is a lie. We don't forget. Never forget. Throughout all history, we will never forget. In the universe to come, when we're in heaven, we will still always remember what happened on planet Earth. Yes? No? Yes. 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 So we will never forget. What? What? Uh, and people get confused about this because in Scripture it talks about, um, I will remember your sins no more as far as the east is from the west, and as deep as the sea I'll remember them no more do you think God actually has some heavenly Alzheimer's things going on up there? He's forgetting some of the things that happened down here. Doesn't really know. Or is it something else that it's talking about? It's not about cognition. It's not about factual knowledge. It's something else. It's relational knowledge. Talking about relational experience. An example I give in my book is imagine that you have a a first grader. um, And uh, your first grader has told a fib. Now, Does your first grader, and so they've told a fib to you. okay? Stolen a cookie, told a fib. You've now aware of this. Does your child or someone else have to intercede with you to get you to love and be forgiving to that child? Or do you forgive the child first and seek to discipline in order to restore and bring the child to repentance? Which happens first? Your forgiving attitude towards the child or the child or somebody doing something to get you to be forgiving? Which happens first? Forgiving the forgiving attitude. Okay, that's God's attitude toward mankind. But because you love the child, you still discipline those you love to bring the child to repentance, right? And so you do. You intervene with the child, whatever discipline is appropriate in that child's life. And that child genuinely repents, mommy, daddy, I'm sorry. And there's tears and there's hugs, kisses all around. We call that reconciliation. Reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, unity, we're one again. Okay, your child, next day, your child goes off to school, you, uh, and, and you're, you're, you come home from work, and, and as, you, as you come up the sidewalk, your child comes running down to say, Mommy, Daddy, you go, oh, here comes that little liar of mine. <laughs> is that what you think? No. If there's reconciliation, is the issue forgotten?
1: Yes.
0: Does that mean you don't recall what happened the day before? No. No. See, memory is not erased. What is erased is when there's genuine change of heart, when there's genuine reconciliation, that issue is no longer between you. I can forget about it because I don't have to deal with it in your life anymore. God can say, it's forgotten because I don't have to worry about healing it. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to erase it out of your heart. I don't have to renew you because it's already done. I don't have to focus on that anymore because you're now well. We're at one. That doesn't mean we don't remember when God did do those things for us. And there's this other thing that's taught that, in fact, when you forgive, you forget. No, it's never safe to forget, even in the relational context, unless there's been regeneration and renewal of heart. If our hearts haven't been renewed and we forget, we then we just open ourselves up to be taken advantage of and exploit over and over again. Does that make sense to you?
1: still being punished by not
0: being having- Punished? Uh I don't know if it will you see these are words we use punished. Punished. Reprimanded? Reprimanded? Wait, 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 In, in the military, is has anyone served in the military besides me? I'm the only one? Well, in the military we, we know that there's a hierarchy of command. The the general on the uh, overseeing the battle has knowledge of a larger landscape that's happening than the captain in charge of one company. Now, the captain in charge of one company may be given orders that, from his perspective, don't seem to make sense. But the general has a perspective over the whole landscape that is critical that this captain does something. Now, the captain might think, hey, I thought I was going to go over here. You like, why am I being punished to go on this assignment? Is he being punished? God had a plan. God had a plan for the salvation of earth and also for the entire universe to rid the universe of sin. Uh, Part of this includes lessons that we learn in an object lesson type of way, in a symbolic type of way. Part of that symbolism has to do with the Old Testament sanctuary service and temple. It's a symbolic enactment, a little theater that teaches things. If God chose... To not have a person set up the temple through weapons of warfare. Was it saying in 2 Corinthians 10? We do not wage wars. The world does. The, uh, the weapons we use are not worldly. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God. I'm suggesting to you, David couldn't set that up because God didn't want people to think that God's kingdom is established by force of might. He wanted the man of wisdom to set it up. Because the man of wisdom, God's kingdom, is set up as the kingdom of truth. And it's truth that establishes God's kingdom. It had nothing to do with punishing David. Okay? And so this is what happens when we project things in and we get these ideas. We have to step back and look a little larger. Yes, Brian. I also
1: think it shows that there are consequences to sin. Even though we are forgiven and, and you repent and there is reconciliation, there are still consequences.
0: Oh, yes. Thank you. David's
1: inability to build the temple was a consequence of
0: that. No, I disagree with that. I disagree. I think David's inability to build the temple had to do with his warfare prior to the sins with Bathsheba. And he was not sinning when he went to war and defeated the, Palestine, Palestine, uh, was it the Philistines and, and all these other guys. This, this, was, this was a blood. He was a man of war. Saul killed us thousands. David killed us ten thousands. And I think it was primarily this issue uh, uh, that God did not allow David, not because of the sin with Bathsheba. Because because of the lesson that I was just describing, even if he never sins with Bathsheba, it still looks like might and power is how God sets up His kingdom, and it's just the opposite. This 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 distortion about might and power is still active in Christianity today, and it's one of the main reasons why we haven't been able to see, to, to spread the truth about God. Because in Christianity, we're still saying that God uses might and power to get His ways, that God uses might and power from heaven to inflict punishment upon the wicked if they don't do what He says. Rather than the kingdom of truth and love. And there's no coercive pressure at all in God's kingdom. Yes.
1: Yeah, and I see this so much in what like, Jesus' own life the way that he entered Jerusalem that last time on the donkey. And I always thought it was an odd way to enter a city as someone who's gonna be a conqueror, and yet the truth is he was that that small symbology there is if he had come riding on a horse it would have been a war hero, somebody who was doing exactly what he said in power. And I think that's the whole idea is that He came in peace on an animal that certainly wasn't a war instrument.
0: And but Brian is right that um, sin has consequences. I just don't think the temple was one of them, but there are many other consequences that came to bear. He lost his—he lost great respect throughout the uh, throughout the community, and then those consequences that they outlined because his sin happened in an environment where everybody else was still pretty much dominated by a me-first principle. They hadn't yet experienced God's grace in their life and had new hearts either. So, yeah, there's no question, sin has consequences. So the the question though is is how could they have prevented? How could they? So David sins, it starts spreading through the community. What could have prevented the spread? God has given us a weapon, a spiritual weapon that would have prevented it. Grace and forgiveness. If they would have been gracious toward David and forgiven him, would it have spread? What about in our community here in College Dale today? What happens when leaders uh, sin in the community of, 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 of the United States today, in our common uh, uh, today? What What happens? Does it spread? How do we prevent the spread? Isn't it the same way? Grace and forgiveness. Yeah. It says, however, there's one thing that David did not control, and that was sin. Although he seemed to control the outward action, sin controlled his choices. And the question is, what is sin? It says in Great great Controversy, page 492. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God. It is transgression of the law. Most people stop there. Notice these next words. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. This is a powerful statement you should really meditate upon. The foundation of the divine government is built upon love, other-centered, beneficent, self-sacrificial giving. That's the foundation of the divine government. Sin is the outworking of a principle at war with love. It's not simply breaking ten rules. It is a principle of selfishness, me first, taking advantage, hurting others, unlovingness. That's what sin is. And clearly in David's life, he was selfish. He was lustful. He didn't care that it was going to hurt Bathsheba and ruin her reputation, even if she didn't get pregnant, even if it wasn't found out. He was damaging her character. He was damaging her, her self-esteem. She might have gotten depressed. She might have become suicidal. She might have felt ugly and unworthy of her husband. I mean, it was destructive to her, irrespective of whether she became pregnant and never found out or not. He didn't love Bathsheba. He was interested in doing what made him feel good. Monday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, David decides to stay home and send his army at Joab. This, of course, David's first mistake. Uh, He somehow, he had somehow begun to believe that he really was more special than his men and and therefore not put, uh, and therefore not put himself in danger. David not yet had learned That the greatest dangers are almost always from within, not from without. Do you believe that's true? Greatest dangers from within, not from without. James chapter one fourteen confirms this: that no one should say God tempts, because God doesn't tempt anyone. We're each tempted, we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Would this be true for Christ's humanity? Was Christ's mission on earth greatest danger from within or without? This is a great debate. Do you know, um, pretty much most of the models that that don't like what we teach uh, don't believe that, that he had to come and he had to pay that legal penalty, and I I actually have had a, a, a written interchange with one of the lead theologians who teaches the other model, and they significantly oppose the idea that Christ experienced temptation from within. Even though the scriptures say in Hebrews four fifteen, he was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. Is that true? Yes. Does James what I just read true that we are tempted by our own desire? And in Gethsemane, did he experience powerful human emotions to act in self interest and not go through the cross? I mean it's very clear anybody whose minds are open, the evidence is right before us. He was experienced human passion or emotion that tempted him, but yet he was without sin, which means temptation or human uh, passion or or fear, anxiety in itself is not sin. It tempts us to act in self-interest, but we have to choose to act in self-interest before it becomes sin. Yes, Tim.
1: What's the, from their perspective, what do you think people feel like the danger is in believing that Christ can be tempted
0: as such as we're talking about? There's multiple layers to that question. One of them is, I was just reading in Desire of Ages this morning, uh, where it said that uh, the thought, the words are not only reflection of the thoughts, but react back upon the thoughts. Men often will say certain things under the, um, uh, under the impulse of a moment, and those words react to reinforce the thought, so they come to believe those things. And then once they have said them, that pride takes hold, and they're too proud to retract them, and they begin to defend them. So if you've spent 40 years teaching a certain doctrine publicly and written 14 books on this particular doctrine, what's the likelihood you're going to come back and say, hey, you know what, that's not really right? <laughs> My bad. Oops. My bad. Yeah. Um, so I think a big part of this has to do with the human ego. Aaron, right from the very first high priest, what did Aaron do? Golden calf. Golden calf. And his two sons, Nate and Abihu. Right. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. This is describing basically the history of the Old Testament. Read it for me.
1: The priest did not ask,
0: where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders who fell against me, the prophets prophesied fail, following worthless idols. Yeah, so there it is. I mean, the priests, these are God's priests. They don't know me. But let's, look, let's, let's not just take that. Look at history. When Christ was on earth, who were the greatest op- opponents to Christ? Peace. Peace. What about in the Dark Ages? Now, now, there were two great theologians in human history that were on God's side. Can you name them? The two great theologians from human history that I can think of anyway. there's more. Paul. Luther. Yeah. Now, you notice what both of those had to do to work for God? Paul had to, had to go three years in the wilderness and spend with God to undo everything he'd been taught. And Luther had to throw off everything he was taught in his seminary training. And so there's this idea, I'm telling you, there's this idea that a particular person who holds a particular church office is anointed of the Lord. And that's what the next question comes to in our lesson, is, is anointed of the Lord. And because he's anointed of the Lord, then, you know, we need to listen to him.
1: You
0: don't question God's she, she says she's heard it. You don't question God's anointed. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that is a lie. You don't harm God's anointed. You don't harm God's anointed. Yeah. David wouldn't lift his hand against Saul, but David certainly didn't follow Saul's leadership, did he? And he said that Saul was Lord Lloyd's anointed, but he didn't follow his leadership and, and do all the things he was, he was doing. So, no, we absolutely question. We don't turn our minds over to anyone, including your Sabbath school teacher. No, I'm not to be your mind for you. I am to to get you to think for yourselves. Yes.
1: Even God himself says come and let us reason together. He doesn't just tell us what we have to do and
0: what we have to believe. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is the whole point. And I hope you guys question me. I mean, question me. Throw it out at me. Disagree, it's okay. Because I never claim infallibility, and we're all learning from each other. And and many times the questions I hear when I travel around send me back to study, and I go, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. That's great.
1: Isn't that how it should be?
0: That's what I would hope. Let's move on. Monday's lesson, I wanted to talk about Satan's accusations against God. Because it, it talks in the lesson about, about an elitist leadership. That when you get into leadership, you don't have to abide by the same rules as the rest of your subjects. David was coming to think this way about himself. Everything didn't apply to him anymore. And people in power often have one set of rules for the people in power. Like, you know, Congress gets their own health care. Everybody else is going to get a different health care. Okay, you know, it happens even in, in America. This is actually one of the allegations Satan made against God. He actually alleged that God has an elitist attitude, has a certain set of, uh, of rules for his creatures that don't apply to him, and he's not willing. Here's, here's what it says out of U and Herald, February 18, 1890. Satan had accused God of requiring self-denial of the angels when he knew nothing of what it meant himself and when he would not himself make any self-sacrifice for others. This was the accusation that Satan meant against God in heaven. And after the evil one was expelled from heaven, he continually charged the Lord with exacting service which he would not render himself. Christ came to the world to meet these false allegations and to reveal the Father. And do we see in Christ that all that is a big lie? He is the most selfless, giving, uh, humble, self-sacrificing being ever. And and then this is out of A.G., page 15. It says, To Daniel was given a vision of fierce beasts representing the powers of the earth. Notice, how do fierce beasts do things? Power, survival of the fittest, kill or be killed. But the ensign of the Messiah's kingdom was a lamb. While earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power, Christ is to banish Every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is to be banished. His kingdom was to be established to uplift and ennoble fallen humanity. So do we see a difference between the two kingdoms? A kingdom that coerces, pressures, controls, threatens, will kill or be killed. And a kingdom of love, which is designed to heal, reach out, restore, redeem, ennoble, uplift. Two totally different contrasting kingdoms. Amazing grades, page 15. And then, and let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so loving and gracious. We, we humble ourselves before you. We, we uh, need so much your enlightenment, your transforming power, your grace. Give us forgiving hearts that we can love those who, who haven't perceived the the beauty of your character and that we can go out and be uh, selfless as you were selfless, harmless, but yet, but yet um, presenting truth in ways that are persuasive and winsome. Bless our church, uh, family and our class family around this world who love this message and are spreading the truth about you we ask that your resources from heaven will be poured out and the communication avenues will continue to expand that we can lighten this world with your, your coming so that, with your truth so we can see you coming soon we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.